acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor. Gene was wooden. But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. O-Z-Y Ozzy Ozzy Media Productions What does it take to change the world? A forceful personality, the right moment, and a good wig. Vladimir Lenin was a brooding scholar and political theorist. He had been living in exile for years. In 1917, he watched from overseas as the Russian Tsar abdicated the throne and a new government took power. The time was right for revolution. Lenin made his move. He disguised himself as a clergyman and snuck into Petrograd, modern-day St. Petersburg. He wore a wig and a fake bandage and shaved his trademark beard and mustache. Incognito, he made his way to a secret meeting held by his fellow rebels, the Bolsheviks. The Bolsheviks wavered on whether to stage a coup or to wait and pursue power through political means. Lenin was fed up. He threw off his wig and demanded an armed overthrow of the Russian government. His passionate argument carried the vote that night. It spurred the revolution. It changed history. It set into motion a series of events that led to the death of another Lenin, 63 years later. I'm Sean Braswell, and this is The Thread, a podcast from Aussie Media. This season of The Thread, we dove into the connected lives of John Lennon, J.D. Salinger, Una O'Neill Chaplin, Eugene O'Neill, and Louise Bryant. We discovered how their stories overlap, influence, and inspire each other. They led us back in time from one Lennon's death to another Lennon's revolution. But there's much more connecting our cast of characters. This is the final episode of this season, and we're going to shake things up. We'll explore some of the other surprising strands to our story. Sometimes you need to look at history from a different angle to get a new perspective. So we structured this episode differently from the rest of the season. Today, we'll focus on three main themes, chance encounters, communism, and suffering. If you're joining us for the first time, please go back to episode one and start our interconnected story from the beginning. First off, Chance Encounters. John Lennon's killer, Mark David Chapman, believed in destiny. He was convinced he was meant to kill the rock star. 
For Chapman, the world was filled with little serendipities, meaningful moments, encounters, and omens. He called them synchronicities. And in the days leading up to John Lennon's murder, Chapman saw them everywhere. A prostitute in a green dress, a passage from The Catcher in the Rye mentioning a Monday in December. And the synchronicities grew stronger the morning of that fateful day as Chapman strolled towards Lennon's home at the Dakota. Yes, I knew that morning, oddly, when I left the hotel. This is Chapman again, in his interview with CNN's Larry King. I, I had some type of premonition that this was the last time I was going to leave my hotel room. I hadn't seen him up to that point. That's what makes it interesting. I wasn't even sure he was in the building. Despite his premonition, though, Chapman was starting to have major doubts about his mission. He thought about going home. As he paced back and forth on the sidewalk in front of the Dakota that morning, he prayed, Please give me the strength. The phonies have to know. Looking up at the Dakota, he had a sudden flash of it as the backdrop of the famous psychological thriller, Rosemary's Baby. The film, directed by Roman Polanski, starred Mia Farrow as a pregnant woman who gives birth to a child of Satan. Chapman remembered how Polanski's own pregnant wife had been murdered by Charles Manson not long after he made the film. Manson blamed the killing on commands he received inside songs like Helter Skelter by, you guessed it, John Lennon and the Beatles. Then, as Chapman pondered the significance of the connection between Rosemary's baby, Charles Manson, and John Lennon, he received another sign, the biggest synchronicity yet. A short, pale woman strolled by him on the sidewalk with a group of children. They crossed the street in front of the Dakota and went into Central Park. It was Rosemary herself, the actress Mia Farrow. Mark David Chapman smiled at the sign. This has to be the day, he assured himself. He remained on the sidewalk, and history took its course. Paramount Pictures presents Mia Farrow in a William Castle production, Rosemary's Baby, suggested for mature audiences. Una O'Neill Chaplin was the fulcrum of our tale the hinge at its center. But there's someone else who could have been the subject of episode three and whose story could have sent us in a very different direction. Ernest Hemingway. In The Catcher in the Rye, Holden Caulfield criticizes Hemingway's classic war novel, A Farewell to Arms. J.D. Salinger, on the other hand, admired the world-renowned writer. Hemingway was a war correspondent for Collier's magazine during World War II and he played a key role in Salinger's wartime experience and writing. Here's Ken Slowinski, the biographer who told us about Salinger's life in episode two, talking about Salinger's PTSD, or battle fatigue. We know of Salinger's um, stay in the hospital. We know of his battle fatigue um, because of a letter that he wrote, of all people, to Ernest Hemingway, whom he had befriended during the war. Salinger confessed to Hemingway that he was, quote, in an almost constant state of despondency. The talks I had with you here, he said, were the only hopeful minutes of the whole business. The talks with Hemingway that Salinger alludes to form a remarkable subplot in the writer's harrowing war story. 
It begins with the liberation of Paris in August 1944, another landmark event that Salinger experienced firsthand. The heart of European civilization is beating strong again. Paris is free. And a flood tide of jubilation has burst forth. It was one of the few positive memories he would carry with him from the war. Jubilant crowds mobbed Salinger and his fellow soldiers. Salinger's assignment was to find and arrest Nazi collaborators. But there was one American in Paris that he wanted to find as well. Salinger sought out Hemingway at the Hotel Ritz. Hemingway greeted the younger writer graciously, and the two talked shop over drinks. Hemingway was even familiar with some of Salinger's short stories. Just imagine how that would have made a young writer feel, especially one that had just survived the bloodbath at D-Day. The two American icons would meet again that winter. Remember the disastrous campaign at Hitkin? Salinger and Hemingway ended up only a mile apart in that cold, dark forest. Salinger made his way to Hemingway's camp during a lull in the fighting one night. The two drank champagne from canteen cups in Hemingway's tent. It was a brief distraction from death and destruction that Salinger would never forget. Salinger found his true therapy in writing. And so, Una O'Neill Chaplin might have helped inspire the subject matter for The Catcher in the Rye, the upper-crust phonies of New York City. But Ernest Hemingway helped inspire and rebuild its war-weary author, giving Salinger a chance to write the novel at all. And now the next theme, communism. Our story begins with John Lennon's death on the doorstep of the Dakota. And it ends at the doorstep of another Lennon, the communist revolutionary Vladimir Lenin. Louise Bryant and Jack Reed got to know Lenin quite well during their time in Russia. They became friends, and the writers visited him often. Lenin even wrote the introduction to Reed's book, Ten Days That Shook the World. Just before Reed died from typhus, Bryant had an exclusive interview with the Bolshevik leader. This interview is a major source for scholars interested in Lenin's views of America. In it, Lenin called for opening up commercial and political relations between the two nations. America and its allies had refused to recognize Soviet Russia and had instituted a blockade that was choking off much-needed goods from entering the country. The previous year, Russia and the U.S. had failed to come to an agreement to lift the blockade. And guess who was the American diplomat in charge of those negotiations? William Bullitt, Bryant's future husband. If the blockade had been lifted, then Jack Reed might have lived. The blockade was the reason that the Moscow hospital didn't have any medicine to give to Reed and the other typhus victims. America's antagonistic relationship with communist Russia continued for decades and impacted the lives of several of our characters. Charlie Chaplin became a target of the communist witch hunt led by U.S. Senator Joseph McCarthy in the early 1950s. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen of the press. Uh, I'm not going to waste your time. I, I shall say, uh, proceed with the butchery. Could you answer the direct question, are you a communist? I am not a communist. Chaplin was neither a communist nor a sympathizer, but the allegations turned Chaplin from a legend to an outcast in Hollywood. As a result, Charlie and Una uprooted their family and moved to Europe. Twenty years later, John Lennon and Yoko Ono were caught in a similar net, but they chose to stay and fight. 
Lenin wasn't a communist either, but his outspoken criticism of the Vietnam War made him a target for the U.S. government. The Nixon administration spent years trying to deport the rock star, and a lengthy court battle ensued. They're after us because we we talk about peace, you know. I mean, because we we want we we want peace, you know. We've said the same thing for two years, different way, one way or another, and we believe in it. Lenin was even called rock and roll's Charlie Chaplin. He eventually won and was able to continue living at the Dakota. U.S. authorities also investigated the playwright Eugene O'Neill for potential communist ties. They wondered why his plays touched on the plight of the poor, the suffering, and the unfortunate. But eventually, O'Neill was also cleared of all suspicions. Up next, suffering. It infuses the characters in O'Neill's plays and also forms another common thread running through the lives of our characters. Notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and the last star on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man, Marie's a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return, your time won't, and we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The characters in our story suffered setbacks, traumas, and neglect in their lives. Troubled childhoods gripped almost everyone. Yeah, so the more you know about um, Lennon and where he comes from, the more a lot of his songs make sense. This is Tim Riley, who we met in episode one. He's talking about Lennon's childhood and his parents' separation. There was this one scene when he was five where his dad came home and actually whisked him off to Blackpool, which was a vacation resort up the coast a little bit. But Lennon's dad hadn't told his mom, and she came looking for John. And apparently there was a confrontation there in, in Blackpool where it said, you have to choose which parent you want to go with. Can you imagine having to choose between your parents right there on the spot? Lennon chose his father, then ran back to his mother as she started to leave. Ultimately, he was raised by his aunt Mimi. What did he used to call you? Mimi. When was the last time he phoned you? Night before he was murdered. Two hours. And he was saying, I'll be seeing you soon, Mimi. I can't wait to see you. And then, of course, at uh, five o'clock the next morning, it came over the overseas news. 
We know Una O'Neill Chaplin was influenced by her father's abandonment. But Eugene O'Neill's own childhood was no walk in the park. His mother once attempted suicide right in front of him. She ran screaming out of their house in New London, Connecticut, and jumped in the Thames River as Eugene and his brothers watched in shock. And uh, he and Jim and James were all standing there, sort of agape, watching this. This is Robert Dowling, who told us about O'Neill in episode four. She had run out of morphine. Um, And O'Neill didn't really know what he was looking at. He had to be explained that his mother was a morphine addict at 14 years old. O'Neill believed in the transformative power of suffering. In his play Beyond the Horizon, he wrote the line, Only with contact with suffering will you awaken. The suffering of combat awakened J.D. Salinger. War may have destroyed Salinger the person, but it created Salinger the artist. His iconic character, Holden Caulfield, comes off very differently in the pre-war short story, A Slight Rebellion Off Madison. First of all, it's in the third person. Um, the narration is cold. The character is aloof. And he's not very likable. This is Ken Solinsky again. By the time uh, he writes the same passages and incorporates it into The Catcher in the Rye, it has taken on a different dimension. It's taken on a sensitivity. The intimacy is so powerful that people feel that they are Holden, that Holden is speaking for them. And that is completely missing from the pre-war Holden Caulfield. Great art often comes in the wake of great suffering. But that's only if you're able to take advantage of it. John Lennon, Eugene O'Neill, and J.D. Salinger all had outlets for their talents and time to cultivate them. Una didn't have that option as a woman in the 1940s and 50s. She had to marry a great man and surrender her own ambitions. She had to find purpose in her devotion to Charlie Chaplin. Take this one scene in a cafe. Again, back in Paris, after the Chaplins left America. Una was in the middle of lunch with her good friends Carol Marcus and Truman Capote. Then all of a sudden, Una looked at her watch and she said, Oh my God, she said, i got to run. Charlie will be back at the hotel now. And Capote said, How can you live like this? He said, Don't you have any time for yourself? And Carol butted in and said, Truman, don't you realize that every woman in the world wants a man to need her like that? Louise Bryant wanted to be needed by the men in her life as well. But she also wanted to be respected as an independent journalist. She resented the attention showered on her husband Jack Reed's writing. When the two journalists returned from the Russian Revolution, they were the talk of the town in Greenwich Village. Reed for his reporting, and Bryant for her Russian attire. Louise, Mary Dearborn writes in her biography of Bryant, had won the approval and friendship of no less than Lenin, the sun god of the radical left. And yet these people talked about her clothes. She was very much aware that women were second-class citizens. This is Mary Dearborn. She was a realist. I mean, this is someone who really worked hard to get out of a little town in Nevada to be on a kind of world stage. And however she could get there, that was fine with her. Eventually, Louise Bryant stopped writing in order to be a wife and mother. It was a sacrifice that would have been unimaginable for most of the male artists in our thread.
There may be no better reason for all of the suffering in this story than bad parenting. And many of our characters were bad parents themselves, as you probably noticed. A couple attempted to redeem themselves, though. Eugene O'Neill tried to reconnect with his daughter near the end of his life, but there was someone standing in his way. O'Neill left Agnes Bolton for the actress Carlotta Monterey. Carlotta fiercely guarded the peace and quiet O'Neill needed to write. And so, Una's letters to her father often didn't make it past Carlotta. But, in 1951, Eugene and Carlotta were briefly estranged. Robert Dowling explains. During that break in their relationship, uh, O'Neill rewrote his will, and Una was right back in there. And he actually told a friend around that time that he really respected Una for actually having made a life for herself in the way that she did. And he really appreciated that. When Carlotta and Eugene patched things up, she made him cut Una out of his will again. None of the parents in our story made more of an attempt at redemption than the man we began with, John Lennon. Lennon had abandoned his son from his first marriage, but he was determined to do things differently when he and Yoko had their son, Sean, in 1975. I think he has this idea that he's gotten a second chance here and he really needs to figure this one out. Tim Riley again. So he stays home to be a house husband, but he was one of the very first celebrities to say, I embrace this feminist notion fully, so fully that I'm going to take a break from my career and actually devote my life to my kid. In a New York Times profile published a month before he was killed, Lennon said, When I look at the relative importance of what life is about, I can't quite convince myself that making a record or having a career is more important or even as important as my child or any child. But I don't buy that, you know, my career is so important that uh, I'll deal with the kids later, which I already did with my first marriage and my first child, and I kind of regret it. J.D. Salinger had a redemption tale of his own. Like Eugene O'Neill, Salinger was a neglectful father, at least at the start. Not long after his daughter Margaret was born, Salinger walled himself off from his family, literally. He built a bunker in the woods where he could write undisturbed, sometimes for up to 16 hours a day. It got so bad that Salinger's wife fled with the baby. She gave him an ultimatum, and Salinger's parenting improved. Which brings us to Central Park, right across the street from the Dakota, where our story began. At the end of the catch on the right, Holden Caulfield watches his 10-year-old sister ride the Central Park carousel. Ken Slowinski again. That is the climax of the book. Holden watches her go around and around on her carousel horse in the rain. I felt so damn happy all of a sudden. The way old Phoebe kept going around and around. It was damn near bawling. I felt so damn happy, if you want to know the truth. I don't know why. It was just that she looked so damn nice the way she kept going around and around in her blue coat and all. God, I wish she could have been there. J.D. Salinger had a similar experience, long after the scene in Catcher was published. He took his eight-year-old daughter Margaret to Manhattan, and they went, you guessed it, to the carousel in Central Park. And Salinger put his daughter on one of the horses and watched in the same spot where he has Holden Caulfield watching his sister, his daughter, ride that carousel, taking the part of his own character after so many years. It, it's 
one of the most moving images that I can think of. It is almost too beautiful to imagine. Salinger at the carousel, watching his own daughter go around. They would have a rocky relationship in the years ahead. But for one moment, at least, there was a real synchronicity between life and art. Mark David Chapman may have called himself the catcher in the rye after he killed John Lennon, but he wasn't. Chapman was a phony. Being a catcher in the rye is about putting others first, something all of our characters had to learn, some the hard way. In the end, the power of their art could not insulate them from the pain of living or the hand of death. What mattered was how they treated others, their instant karma, their connections. We're all connected. Each moment, our interactions and choices shape the course of our lives and impact the lives of others. What we call history is the accumulation of these actions and reactions, of chance encounters and contingencies, of causes and their effects. Every outcome is a thread that gets woven into history's ever-expanding tapestry, a sprawling masterpiece composed of our own lives entwined with the lives of all those who came before us. The Thread is produced by Meredith Hotman, Libby Coleman, and me, Sean Braswell. Our editors are Carlos Watson and Samir Rao. Meredith Hotnot engineered our show with mixing and sound design from James Rowlands. Special thanks to Cindy Carpian, David Boyer, Tracy Moran, Sean Colligan, Sanjeev Tandon, Cameo George, and KALW. Check us out at Ozzy.com. That's O-Z-Y.com. Or on Twitter and Facebook. To learn more about The Thread, visit Ozzy.com slash The Thread. All one word. And make sure to subscribe to The Thread on Apple Podcasts. If you love surprising, engaging stories from history, like this one, look no further than the flashback section of Ozzy. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for more interconnected stories from history with Season 2 of The Thread, coming soon. writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.